Hello? Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, I'm not the only technical thing that needs to happen. Could you, uh, everyone, also please switch off their mobile phones or put them onto silent? And then we'll start with the last session of the day, which, um, which is going to be a conversation between Omar Khalif and Kamal Walahulari. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce them both. Um, Omar is a writer, curator, and editor. As the curator of the Whitechapel Gallery, his recent projects include Emily Jakar, Europa, and Imperfect. He's also the senior visiting curator at home in Manchester, as well as the senior editor of Ibrats Publishing. He previously headed the Art and Technology at Space in London and was curator at FACT, the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology in Liverpool. Omar has also been artistic director at the Arab British Centre in London and is the founding director of the UK's Arab Film Festival. More recently, Omar curated the Cypress Pavilion at the 56th Venice Biennale, Focus Manam at the Armoury Show in New York, and the Abraj Group Art Prize in Art Dubai. His books include You Are Here, Art After the Internet, Jeddah Childhood circa 1994, and Moving Image. Kumar lives and works in Cape Town. He has a BA in Fine Arts from the University of Witwatersrand. Kumar co-founded the Contemporary Art Collective, Google Collective, in 2006. He is also a founding member of the Center for Historical Reenactments in Johannesburg. He has enjoyed solo shows at Gasworks in London, Lombard Freed Projects in New York, as well as Stevenson at the Goethe Institute in Johannesburg. His work has been included in notable group exhibitions, African Odysseys at Le Brass in Brussels, the 8th Berlin Biennale, Public Intimacy, Art and Social Life in South Africa at the Yerbas Brunner Center for the Arts in San Francisco, and the Ungovernables at the New Museum in New York. Earlier this year, he was awarded the Standard Bank Young Artist for Visual Art. Thank you. So um, I'm just going to uh, get us started here, and um, we are going to have a conversation, but I'm going to lean it more towards Kamang, because I think he's more interesting than me, and that you should all hear what he has to say and um, have a bit of an archaeology, as it were, into uh, Kamang's practice. Um, it, it's a real honor and pleasure to be able to have this conversation um, at a time when you're having your first UK solo show at Gasworks, which marks its reopening. Um, but I think there's so much more to your practice, really a polyphony of ideas and processes that I'm hoping we'll be able to untangle um, that extend far beyond um, what any one exhibition um, can hold, I believe. Uh, the, I'm also very just want to say a word of thanks. Thank you so much to 154 and to Koya. We have been uh, distant colleagues in the field, never to have met before. It's a real pleasure that this is the beginning of a conversation. And just picking up on that, I'm hoping that we can use Kameng's work and some of the ideas within it, specifically thinking about history and archives to open up to broader ideas around territory and territoriality um, in, in this conversation. Uh, we're gonna do this by having Kameng talk us through um, some processes and I'll interject and, and try and drive it. 
uh, and then there'll be room and time for questions as well. And I always say that if there's a burning desire, please do feel free to scream and interrupt us as well. It's all, we always love spontaneity. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of uh, thank you so much, Kimeng, for this, for this chance to chat. Uh, we've been getting to know each other uh, since you've been here in London, and it's been a, a real pleasure to continue this conversation and dialogue. But for everyone here, I kind of wanted to begin um, at the beginning and to kind of get a sense of um, your creative influences, um, not only as an artist, but it's always hard when, when, I, when I'm interviewing artists like yourself because you're not an artist who simply works in one media, but your work is part of a, a much broader process of um, interactions really that flow in and outside of the context of the gallery space. And I was hoping you could talk us through the beginnings. Whew. <laughs> <coughs> Um, thanks, Omar, um, and thanks for the invitation to um, uh, come and speak here today, and thank you also for being here, taking time, and making time to be here. Um, uh, beginnings. Uh, well, um, I, when I was a teenager, I, um, I did voiceovers for radio. Um, I did uh, drama, theater, um, uh, appeared on a German television series when I was 12 years old. I uh, was shot in Cape Town. Um, um, so these were things that I was doing at the time and the age. And um, I was um, surrounded by people who worked in these industries um, all the time. Um, and I kind of decided as a teenager that that's the route I would take, um, that I would work in theater. Um, either, in fact, either theater or, or film. Um, but as time went by, um, that changed. Uh, um, ended up doing fine art, uh, but also my beginnings as an artist, um, I'd say were more out of a curiosity because when I left school, um, in fact, I enrolled to uh, a performing art program, but I didn't feel challenged because I'd done all the work already throughout my high school years. Um, so I switched um, uh, from uh, performing art to, to visual art, fine art. Um, and I did this because I wanted to feel challenged. Um, and it was never really something that I thought I would take up, that I would be doing what I'm doing today. Um, and I think, in fact, as a result, I've always had this kind of uh, ambiguous relationship and uh, skepticism as well about uh, my practice and where I am. Um, yeah. So thinking about those beginnings, you touch upon your, your I suppose, your career as, as an actor and a performer who's navigating multiple disciplines and you make your way into the field of art. Um, and some of your early works from 2008 very much took a kind of performative impulse in them, including this, this project here that we see behind <coughs> us. Do you want to start by taking us through this? Um, uh, this is a performance, uh, 2008, which was in the context of a show called uh, Scratching the Surface, um, which was a two-part exhibition. Um, so if anyone's familiar with Cape Town, or if you're not, um, the city uh, uh, basically is, is centered around uh, the mountain, uh, Table Mountain. 
and this is where everything generally happens. And historically, black people who lived in the city or close to the city were moved furthest away as possible from the city. Um, and Kugule to one of the townships in which I, uh, the township which I grew up in is one of the townships in which uh, black people were sent uh, <clears throat> during apartheid uh, when the Group Areas Act came into place. Um, so with a close friend, uh, we began conceptualizing an art collective in 2006, which um, sprang from an interest in the geopolitical um, of Cape Town, um, the spatial politics, the urban planning, and, and so forth. Um, so the, the work took place in the context of this, uh, not only the, the, the collective, but also um, an exhibition which we, we had a, a show in the city and then also in the township. Um, as a way of, of, of uh, shattering the, the boundaries of where art could be seen. Of course, I mean, the collective itself had a very uh, dedicated and specific kind of manifesto or agenda, which is completely different. I won't go into that. But uh, with this performance, um, initially, it was intended as a kind of symbolic gesture um, uh, towards archaeology, um, literally digging. It was intended as a meditative kind of uh, process and gesture. Um, so I was digging with an Afro comb, um, uh, which I'm sure every black person in here knows what it is. Um, uh, and it took me three days to dig a, a hole this deep. Um, uh, and I discovered some bones in the hole. Um, and this was um, in someone's backyard. So initially, I sent a guy a text. I said, hey, I found some bones in your backyard. Should I stop digging? Because there were ribs. I didn't know. I th at the time, I thought they were human bones. Um, and I thought, hey, maybe he'd killed someone. And you know, kind of, <laughs> who knows? So I said, uh, so he sent his brother over. And turns out uh, it was a cow um, that had been buried there in the 60s, 70s. Um, and the interesting thing that happened from, from this was that uh, neighbors came to give testimony about this cow that not only one, in fact, they said the whole backyard uh, had cow skeletons because they buried these cows with the flesh because they had some disease, um, so they couldn't be consumed. Um, but what was interesting was a transgenerational dialogue that began to happen as the neighbors came over to this house, which we had used as our project space, um, to kind of testify and word spread around the neighborhood that there was this thing I'd found, so people came to, to speak to it, um, which kind of led to a broader interest in what we will see later on in, in the slides. I mean, I just want to touch upon the act of digging as a performative gesture because uh, so much of your work is about digging into very specific um, historical contexts and through that process, uh, the social relations that emerge um, create, in a sense, part of the work. How do you decide on the specificities of the context or where it is that you're going to begin the research? Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. <coughs> uh, um, I think uh, 
this, this, why I began with this work, I mean, there's, there's work before this, uh, um, but why I began with this? Because it, it kind of um, leads me in a, towards a curiosity about um, the idea of a chance discovery, because I never intended to find these bones. And that led to kind of uh, different questions and conversations, um, both with a friend, in fact, who was co-curating the project, when she went to Bard College, um, it's something that she always took with her so that when we're corresponding while she's doing a curatorial um, at Bard, she's always coming back to this piece. <clears throat> and as a result, uh, I became really interested in this idea of the chance discovery. So uh, to speak about uh, the idea of research and how um, the digging, um, uh, Whew, it's it's hard to say because I don't have one particular agenda um, mm. or something that I'm obsessed with. It's it's just really, um, if I could put it simply, uh, would be to say in the words of Maya Angelou who said, um, if there's a book you'd like to read which is not written, um, uh, write it yourself. And for me, uh, a lot of my work has to do with uh, interest in uh, marginalized histories. Mm both on a very kind of minuscule or individual personal level, but also in a broader kind of um, collective <coughs> uh, level. Because um, uh, history, as we know, is, uh, is very contentious in terms of who writes it and all of that. In South Africa, um, highly so. Um, you have the ruling party now, which has been trying to rewrite the history of South African uh, liberation. Um, in a very, very obscured kind of way, and a lot of people are written out of it. You have um, art history where a lot of people have been written out of it. Mm. And there are a number of reasons why people get written out. It's either they were too radical for the establishment, or the people who are writing the history do not agree with these people's politics. Mm. So I was <clears throat> very much drawn um, uh, initially as uh, way, by way of academic research mm. towards certain histories. So I. Uh, written some stuff about um, uh, art collectives which had been marginalized or intentionally written out of South African history, um, art history, and uh, even within what one would uh, call the, um, the, f the, the, the body of work which was termed uh, protest art in South Africa. If you look at one of the, <coughs> what is considered one of the most important books um, uh, which deals with an anti-apartheid kind of um, artistic movement. It begins with a white artist, mm. you know, and for me, I began to question this because black people were the recipients of apartheid mm. in terms of they, they were at the receiving end of the, of the oppression. And for me, it, the book kind of makes it seem that blacks were not aware of the oppression and never revolted or stood up against it. So there were all these kind of very small things that I was reading in this larger kind of historical narrative, both at the large social political, but also in the, in the art historical narratives. I think this idea of making history is one that is kind of worth dwelling on um, for numerous reasons. First, the, there's two angles. One for me that, that I'm interested in is this idea of the art historical. Um, partly because I'm from the other end of the continent, from Egypt, and many of the, the kind of discourses that you mentioned in terms of how education is formed and how 
narratives are written out of, um, especially in relation to the modernist project, for me is very, very interesting to kind of dig into those parallels because when I was studying at school, for example, high school, I was particularly frustrated that no one who at all resembled or belonged or lived in my locality was a subject that I was in, appeared in any of my textbooks. And what, one of the projects that you did that's mentioned in this catalog here was uh, um, a, a look at um, South Africa's first modern artist, um, Ernest Mankoba, and a, a kind of homage to him in the form of a film. And I was wondering about this idea of whether you're, pract how, whether you're practiced in a sense how you relate this idea of homage and um, the idea, idea of taking something and making it your own, I suppose, because I think there's a, there's a very kind of um, fine line between those two things, and I, I think what, from what I see is you're taking a narrative that is silenced and reactivating it through your own subjectivity, so it's not necessarily a document. So I'm curious about those, I know it's a long-winded question, <laughs> I'm curious about those negotiations, especially uh, around Mankoba and the, the kind of, these, these modernist figures or this act in relation to this um, history. Hmm. Um. <coughs> my my long-winded <laughs> questions. I know it's uh, been a long week. Uh, this, um, I think it's an interesting uh, kind of image to, to, to start to answer your question. So uh, here I was uh, creating some books, actually, as part of a performance. And then the performance was much longer. But at this point, I was creating a geography book, uh, which uh, part of a series of books which I was uh, creating with the cheese grater, um, which were from my syllabus in high school. <coughs> um, so like I mentioned, like with uh, people like Ernest Mangoba, these are people who weren't taught not only um, in, in high school or like throughout kind of uh, pre-tertiary education, because I did art uh, throughout since forever, but also at university level, there was never any kind of serious kind of consideration of any black artists. That's a fact. Um, we only learned about European artists, about um, American artists, um, and they were all white, by the way. And for me, I couldn't relate. But at the same time, because the institution is so wide in terms of the lecturers and the professors, the kind of narratives I'm bringing to the table, they don't relate to either, or they refuse, in fact, to even engage with them. Um, so to speak back to, I mean, uh, the Mangova thing, um, uh, sometime last year, um, Hans Ulrich uh, Obrist uh, uh, said that he had this footage um, uh, which was an interview he did with Anas Mangoba, uh, I think it was 98 or 99 at the time, a few weeks before he died, um, just outside of Paris. Um, uh, and it's a very important kind of document, um, the conversation, the interview. Um, and I didn't know what to do with it, to be honest, when he said, hey, would you be interested? Um, so I did make this video in the end. Um, which I think, if I recall properly, is about 10 minutes, a little over 10 minutes, um, where I try to include myself in, in the work, but also try and encapsulate some kind of ideas that I've been dealing with in terms of 
history as something malleable, but also history as a, as a palimpsest. Um, history is something very elastic uh, that one can basically move around uh, if one has the power to do so. Um, so yeah, it was a homage. I, I'm still not sure actually if I could call that a work, um, even though it, uh, that video is uh, included now in a touring exhibition in South Africa. Mm. Um, I really don't know how to, to define it. Um, can I, still on the idea of kind of making history, you also often look at kind of uh, literary figures um, or different, different texts also as inspiration. A um, little bit of that can be found in the Gasworks show. And also, even in, in this, in this uh, monograph, you start with, with a very kind of emotional, emotional quote. And I was um, curious about, and actually the, the quote um, by Bloch Mojisani is from a, a, his memoir called Blame Me on History, which I think is, um, is very, very apt, I think, in relation to the discussion that we're having. Um, how, how do you relate to literature and to text when, in terms of <coughs> process? Um, so, uh, because of like uh, describing my uh, work in um, voice, doing voiceovers for radio, um, television, theater, I'd been also writing uh, both uh, poetry, uh, some of which is embarrassing, um, and some of which is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> some of uh, some of its public it's, it's included in the book, um, but also um, how it re my writing really began as a kind of um, I was writing plays because that's what I had access to at the time or what I was doing. Um, I was doing theatre. I was on stage, um, so I started writing plays, which later developed into films, film scripts, um, and then. Um, as I, I started working and exhibiting, there was always this sense of like, I have this other thing that I, I do on the side, and it was about how to bring this um, uh, to the table uh, or into the studio and kind of um, incorporate that into my practice. And initially I started looking at other works that had uh, influenced me um, uh, and I'll just skip through these to come to this. Um, uh, uh, I went back to a play called um, As an Island, which was a play I'd seen. Uh, at the time, it was a video documentation of the original, um, uh, which was a play by um, Ethel Fugard, uh, um, uh, Winston John, and John Gunn. Uh, and the curious thing about, I mean, it's a very, very complex play. Uh, it's history also. Uh, because of the time it was written, they could not actually write it down on paper because it could be used as evidence against them because of the political uh, um, situation in South Africa um, <clears throat> and the kind of censorship that uh, was there at the time. So there was this idea of these people like kind of reconstructing this play all the time, like based on memory and not writing it down, so um, on the one hand. And then secondly, I was always struck by the first uh, scene from, from the play, 
um, which is what I've kind of restaged here um, in collaboration with a, um, with a, um, a choreographer uh, a few years ago. Um, and that was really the first way in which I was kind of attempting to bring those worlds, the, 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 um, the writing, literally, so to speak, in the work without necessarily having the writing like as a text. Um, um, so I'd say it, it would be this piece. Um, uh, Tell us a bit about this piece in terms of the, the formal makeup as well as the scenography, because scenography is so important as well in terms of... Um, so this piece I made uh, while I was meditating and researching on Nat Nakasa, uh, which I, I'll speak to uh, shortly after this. Um, so Nat Nakasa is a, is, a, is a writer who left South Africa on an exit permit. He wasn't allowed a passport. Um, very contentious history. Um, he was considered a communist in South Africa, but was receiving funding from the CIA. Um, I don't think he knew he was receiving funding from the CIA, but the funding was for a uh, publication, which at the time was considered uh, one of the most exciting publications. Um, literary publications in South Africa. It's called the Classic. Um, so Ned Nakasa left South Africa in 1964 on an exit permit without a passport. So um, he wrote about himself um, as a native of nowhere because he had no passport, he had no citizenship of any country, but he went to Harvard to study for nine months. Um, and then at the end of this period, fell to his death. Um, uh, and uh, circumstances around his death are quite contentious as well because um, the, and that's a picture of him taken in, um, in New York. Um, I think it's in Brooklyn. Um, so <coughs> uh, he fell to his death in 1965. And what you see here is a, a video recording actually of me visiting his grave. Um, to read some poetry to him after I'd seen a work by inspiration by a work by a Japanese artist, which I mean, we can get into yeah. later. But um, uh, Nat Nagasa, even in death, wasn't allowed to come back home. So I embarked on this project where I initially went to visit his gravesite and read some poetry. So I'll That's play sweet, this. Yes. Uh, I've got some sound. From three brothers. Unfortunately, we don't have a woman. And here in person? No, I mean a text. Oh. Yeah, to read to him. Yeah, but anyway, this was a last minute thing for me. So. I hope you don't mind. What should I start with? Macmanac. This is a, a work in progress by Macmanac Magumela, a young South African writer, poet uh, from Johannesburg. You might have not his father at some point. So, this is a work in progress titled uh, Bring Nakasa Home. 
my Magmanag. Nagasagon. How long should the upstage? Upstage, Nagasa's bowls. Let his soul come dance at home. Far from the torment of Brooklyn Bridge blues. Nagasa gone. How long shall the say how long should the soil remain clueless about the native that left? Only to encounter uncharted madness. Bring Nagasa home. Who will sing of the sacrifice when his words would move no more? When his words could move no more. Deep in the hatred of his exit, he found that there is more to skin color in Harlem than the straight movement freedom. Down Victoria Street, keep Nagasa warm. Because many of us have been raised far from the silent storm, alive with possibility shouts the so-called rainbow, that how possible is it to drum identity back into the passport of a native from nowhere, because Nat's name remains unknown. Who among you is strong enough to carry the legacy? That's untold. And forget not Nagasa's door. So that was a, a work in progress. was inspired by the Fluxus Associated Artist from Japan and Spatial Poem Number no. 3. Can you talk about a little bit about that and how that interest began? Um, <clears throat> so I'd seen this work in um, uh, probably a week before I went to, to New York um, where I was uh, uh, set to do a performance lecture at the New Museum as part of the Center for Historical Reenactments. And it kind of inspired me to go to the grave and read some poetry. Um, but also what I did was to respond directly to the poem, which was a call to submit documentation of things that you make fall intentionally. Um, so I did this uh, via, uh, via uh, Polaroid medium uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, and what I did was uh, I, um, I sub actually submitted some of the Polaroids to Shieko Shiom um, because the work was a call for documentation. And I included a letter to her um, which uh, she confirmed that she received. Um, um, but while doing this project, um, I went back to, to New York uh, and uh, for a second um, uh, trip to the grave and I cut out a piece of grass from his grave um, and I, the time I was in a residency program in Amsterdam and I took the grass back to, with me to Amsterdam and the idea was that I would take it back to South Africa. Um, so I kept it uh, in my studio, tried to keep it alive and for me, really, it was about bringing him back home, um, <coughs> uh, even if symbolically. Um, and it was really inspired, I mean, initially by the, the piece by Shieko Shiomi. And then the poem I read at his grave, uh, which is a friend of mine, um, whom, in fact, wrote the poem after I told him about the performance lecture at the New Museum. Um, uh, 
And then, so all of this was uh, 2013, and then late last year, um, the South African government announced that they were going to uh, repatriate his remains and take it back to South Africa. Um, so that's where the project kind of um, finished off. And, and this piece, which is, I suppose, part of something that you've called uh, living sculptures as well, evolved from this and actually forms part of the subject of the Gasworks show, as I understand mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Can, we, can we touch upon that and the kind of the scenography and material of, of that project and how it came from this? Mm. So the, the, when I was doing the project in uh, 2013, um, uh, again, I mean, another chance thing uh, was the fact that South Africa was uh, uh, having its, um, it was a uh, hundred years since the Native Land Act was instituted, which was something uh, which was brought about by the British government, which was to be a very formative act for South African politics and history. Uh, till today, in fact. Um, uh, in 2019, um, uh, 1914, let me just skip to the images of that. Um, uh, in 1914, um, uh, um, and this, of course, was never successful because they arrived here a few weeks before World War I broke out. Um, but at the same time, uh, he stayed nonetheless and uh, his delegation left and he did some observations here in London. And when I was invited to do the uh, a show at Gasworks, I, I took this as an entry point kind of reimagining his journey to London, finding myself in London, a city which I dislike. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, Is that so because of public transport? Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> Continue, sorry. Um, uh, yeah, so I, 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 be I began um, an interest um, also because um, of another project I've been doing, which like took me uh, uh, kind of into like a very deep spiritual kind of pathway, uh, influenced this project quite heavily in terms of my approach. So I was really interested in this project with uh, uh, time traveling. Um, uh, so what I did was to kind of reimagine uh, Sol Blatty coming to London um, uh, with his petition against the Native Land Act of 1913, um, uh, but also looking at 1914, his time here, and the fact that in 1914, the award or prize, uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature was not awarded because of, um, of, of the war, even though it was awarded for other categories. Hmm. Um, so I've commissioned a writer to write a petition to the Nobel Foundation to award Sol Blighty. A, um, an award posthumously mm. uh, as a way of intervening in time, um, both for me, what I imagine 
as imagined time, but also real time as a way of intervening in history directly. Um, so that's kind of a brief, uh, give you an idea of, of the show. Can, can we talk a little bit about your use of material? Because um, the, the processes by which you work all evoke different kind of histories, but also the processes themselves kind of have different kinds of performative resonances. So in this space you have um, these living sculptures surrounded by these uh, porcelain, I believe, dogs, that some of which have been smashed, which maybe we could touch upon the symbolism of, of, of that. And this piece here, which has um, been chipped away at, and the remnants of it kind of um, sit on the floor in the gallery space. Can and then there's also these, something that you've, a trope that you adopt a lot is that you use blackboard and this kind of very meticulous images or and texts that are produced, such as the big one for the new museum that we saw uh, a second ago. Um, and within all of this, there's something that's very ephemeral, very almost like it's a, the objects are performing in the space temporarily and then they kind of dissipate. And I wanted to meditate upon and those processes and kind of hope that you would unfold them a bit using this piece perhaps as a starting point. Uh, okay, actually I have to go back before I can speak to this piece. Um, I'll just show uh, 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 I was visiting my aunt in Kugule to where I grew up um, and one of the neighbors she came in and uh, had this book and two old cameras, film cameras. And she said, hey, I thought, I was cleaning my house, found these old things, and I thought that you might have use for these things because I don't need them. And my aunt asked to see the book, and when she saw the name of the, the, the name on the book, uh, she recognized Gladys Mkujangu's name. And she said, hey, I knew this person. Doing some serious research on Gladys, um, I went up and read, and because I was really curious now, even though I had known her work, but I'd never really taken a particular interest. She was understood. In fact, if I recall correctly from my research, she herself proclaimed herself as the first black woman painter in South Africa. 
Um, so there was quite a lot of attention around her work and she exhibited regularly. She was in the newspaper, she met with ambassadors from the US. Uh, these are the kind of people who came to her exhibition. She exhibited in town, uh, in the city center. Um, uh, so I mean, there's that uh, kind of historical importance that uh, a black woman uh, artist during the 70s would gain that type of attention. Of course, her work is quite contentious in the sense that a lot of people have critiqued the work, um, including Bessie Head, uh, the well-known writer Bessie Head, critiqued Kudlanzo's uh, work. Um, but uh, for me, I mean, having spent time with, with, with her work and looking at her work properly, and to some degree, this is what I find quite sad about her work, is that not many people write about what she's actually painting. Um, and it's easily dismissible as childish, strong, to, to, to paraphrase uh, Bessie Head. <laughs> For me, there's, there's something interesting uh, that's happening uh, in her work that kind of speaks to, to the now or a long uh, question or issue uh, around uh, displacement, around um, alienation from, from, from nature, alienation from, from land. She wasn't necessarily depicting revolutionary images like some of the artists were doing at the time, which was anti, directly anti-apartheid, um, or like this kind of heroic image of, of spectacle and of protest. But I think in a sense for me, it was a kind of protest. It was her protest. Um, it was a protest against being boxed in these really, really small houses. So like, it's a bit Initially, I mean, I went to, to visit the house uh, where Mkuzanju had lived and naturally the, the paintings were no longer there. Uh, there was a flat color on the walls and, uh, but also the, the man who lives there now is not related to her. And when I told him about the possibility that there might be these paintings there, like he was quite curious as well, but he's not someone who's really interested in the arts. Um, so I had asked him if he would be willing to allow me to work in the space. We don't know how thick this layer is, so I'm going a bit slowly because 
somehow it doesn't look like there are paintings underneath because it, it looks very neatly painted and the surface is very flat and very it looks replastered if they are there there will be quite a few layers in between the top layer and, and the painting Okay. Okay. That brick? Mm, no, it looks like a layer of cement, like cement mortar. We lie, Kakat, a percent. Are you painting into a little election? Woman, don't go to Mulam Woman a corner. Shall we go beyond or shall we? But can you go beyond that? can do anything but I doubt it. This is someone else's living space. I might not be able to uncover these works. Um, and because of this, I had to kind of uh, accept the possibility that I might never see the, the, these wall paintings, the murals. So instead, what I've done is to ask my aunt, um, who has no training in art whatsoever, to kind of recreate the murals. So the piece I understand that in Gasworks is using this process of uncovering these murals that you and your aunt kind of emerge from this collaboration. Um, can you, can you talk, talk, unfold that a bit more for us? Um, <clears throat> so um, I, I said a lot in that video <laughs> about, uh, about uh, Gladys and Kudlanzi. But um, 
So um, for a number of years, I've been doing these wall drawings, which are chalk drawings uh, directly onto the wall. Um, and uh, they last um, as long as the show is up. It can be anything from three weeks to three months. Um, uh, so they have this very limited uh, lifespan. So they appear and then they get destroyed. And my curiosity would, when, my, when I spoke to my aunt about her seeing a mural in this house in 1971 as a teenager was the fact as to whether they would still be there. Um, and for a long time, um, because I'd been planning to do a, a wall carving instead of a chalk drawing, um, it, it felt like it was uh, the perfect timing to, um, to do this here at Gasworks. Um, so instead of drawing with chalk on the wall, I, I used the line of cut tools mm. um, instead, but also still operating within the idea of the ephemeral because once the show closes, then this work gets destroyed. It's not something that will be preserved um, or cut out or sent elsewhere. Um, so I'm con conscious of time and wanting people to ask questions, but I had one, one last long-winded question, I suppose, for you that I, that I wanted to use as a, as a gateway to that. Um, I mean, f for me, there is this consistent act of reanimating historical events performatively, but so much of it emerges or is rooted in the context of, um, of South Africa and the, the, numerous, the numerous histories that have been marginalized and the relationships of that to other sites. So even when you move into different contexts, there is, there is this kind of harking back. And I was curious, bearing in mind the context of this fair and the idea of looking at Africa as a kind of larger constituent whole t and its relationship to other regions, whether there were kind of parallel relationships or points of exploration, particularly because we've touched upon it briefly between the so-called Middle East or Western Asia. And you were telling me an anecdote about, about a, a kind of uh, un, a project that you had in mind and maybe you wanted to touch upon that. Which one is that? We're talking about Lebanon particularly. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I don't have a particular project in mind uh, with regards to Lebanon, but it's something that, I mean, I'm curious. I'd, I'd still like to go and visit. Um, I've never been to the Middle East um, or that part of the world, or the Far East. Um, but uh, when I began an interest in um, uh, or, uh, with wall pieces, if I call it this, um, uh, I read a text uh, about graffiti in Lebanon. Mm. So it was a piece about um, the kind of graffiti that uh, went up during a civil war in Lebanon, and also the kind of graffiti that appeared after the Civil War in public spaces. Mm -hmm. And I really became interested in this within the South African context, um, thinking about uh, what I'd call leftovers of apartheid kind of uh, anti-apartheid slogans or protest statements, um, and what kind of imagery or text was appearing on the walls afterwards. Um, 
So that's, I mean, one uh, uh, interest in the wall, uh, wall works to a certain extent, not entirely. Um, and that was a link that I could make via Lebanon through this essay I'd read. Um, but I haven't been to that area, so um, I mean, if I spoke about it or tried to extensively, I, I would run the risk of falling into the traps of um, uh, the kind of uh, situation you mentioned earlier um, as we were walking in um, that you had in Chicago <laughs> uh, because you're a Muslim. So this, yeah, I think one has to be sensitive. Also, I mean, even in speaking about the African continent, because um, it's such a huge continent, and uh, I can only think about um, a country which I've visited more than once, which is a neighboring country, Zimbabwe, um, and the differences are so huge and stark mm -hmm. um, that for one to even speak about in Africa is actually not only impossible, but I feel at times it's very disrespectful mm -hmm. um, to the various kind of projects that people are trying to do or involved in and the kind of work that they are doing because it assumes a kind of, uh, in fact not assumes, but what it does is a, a flattening of mm -hmm. a, a large body of people with a various interests and ideas, aesthetics, um, and flattens them into one kind of entity. On that pro provocation, perhaps, or op open-ended provocation, I wondered if we had questions from the audience for Kameng about the work or anything that we discussed um, over the last hour or so. And I think we have a roving mic for anyone who does want to ask a question. It's up here. Hi, I'm Jason, and <coughs> very curious about the murals in the, in the house, what happened afterwards, and were you ever revisited to somehow, I don't know, find an x-ray camera or some equipment that can actually unveil the paintings, or are you not interested in finding out how they look like at all? I, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um. So that, that project is, is still a, an ongoing project. Um, uh, so <clears throat> the restorer I was working with said, once we, if we uncover the works, then they are, uh, then they are at risk because they are exposed. Whereas all this time for about the past 50 years, they've been protected by the various layers of paint and the plaster. Um, and because it's not my house, and the guy who also lives there, I found out recently that he doesn't own the house. So it's a very complicated story. Um, and of course, I could have gone in and said, hey, can I buy the house? Um, but also, I was very aware of the kind of displacement I would do to the man who lives there. He's lived there since 1990. Um, he's someone who, in fact, left South Africa as a political activist and went to train in Russia in military warfare. Um, he was, um, uh, anyway, it's a long story. And then he kind of lost his mind, if I would put it bluntly and crudely. So he's someone who's mentally unstable. He has to go to a mental asylum or hospital for about two weeks every month. Um, so he's really, really unstable. And to 
the, the complication of the project is that uh, I would like to turn the, the, the house into a museum, but it's also the kind, I have to be sensitive in terms of how do I occupy the space, uh, because that would mean getting him out, because he, I can't turn it into a museum while he lives there. Nor can I expose the whole house. I mean, my aunt says the whole house was painted from floor to ceiling. In fact, the ceilings as well, she said, were painted with these murals. So it's, it's very, very complicated. I mean, I would like to. Um, I was in touch with the um, Hasselblad Foundation before I went to do the actual work on the walls, um, and they were meant to send me a camera that they have, which is an X-ray camera, which would allow me to scan the walls. But then um, there were too many complications involved in that, and then it kind of fell away. Yeah, so it's, it's an ongoing project, but complicated. My name is Lisa van der Wart. Um, I saw, I can't remember if it's a reproduction or what, over a trees of Esther's work, and then with the dogs they showed me. Can you just say something about the dogs and the installation that you have over a freeze? Because you didn't get round to speaking about the, oh, the uh, significance of the dogs. Yeah, um, I'm very curious about the dogs. Everyone's curious about the dogs. <laughs> um, well, um, so, uh, you want to show a picture of the dogs? Uh, well, the dogs always appear in the work. Um, oh, that's my aunt working in the studio. Um, uh, so, um, there are the dogs. Um, uh, speaking about kind of text and how it appears in the work, I think oftentimes uh, text that I've written or text that I find elsewhere are very influential in the work, even if they don't appear as, as text. Um, so um, this uh, comes from a, a short story I've been working on over a number of years, um, which in fact now I'm hoping to uh, produce as a film next year. But I'd been struggling with it, and, um, and the short story basically is about uh, a superstition we had as kids where we had the belief that if you took sleep from a dog's eyes and placed it on your own human eyes, uh, you could see into a spiritual realm. Um, and because I was uh, too chicken to try this as a kid, I was what, eight or nine, um, uh, when I started writing, I tried to revisit this idea through the text, um, but I've always find it a challenge to go beyond the point where one places the, the sleep on one's eyes as to what does one actually see. Um, but I began using this as a, some kind of metaphor, as a way of not going into the spiritual realm, but uh, traveling in time or traveling into history, or dealing with history, and treating history as something that one needs a kind of special lens to look at. Um, and hence the dogs kind of appear in the work and um, as, uh, for me, as a symbol, but also as kind of uh, um, uh, maybe they accompany me on this, on this journey uh, of traveling in time and history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
One more question. Well, if there's no more questions, maybe I could ask a final one. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, there's, there's a lot of things we, we didn't touch upon, but the idea of um, of memory was one that I just wanted to end to end on, and the significance of memory as a kind of um, as as a kind of field. And I mean, would would you say it would be appropriate that, um, in a sense, that the work is trying to create a kind of reconstitutive sense of a, of a collective memory, or is it a, or is it a singular memory? Because I think there is this tension between. Um, whether, whether the works are being put out are kind of singular representations or collective. And knowing that you've worked in two different collectives, I was curious about the idea of singularity and collectivity. Well, it's a good to end with a big question. It's Saturday, right? All the time <laughs> questions. Uh, um, I think uh, for me, um, it, it becomes tricky, like, as I mentioned with the idea of Africa, uh, Africa is an idea and flattening it out. I think it's easy for one to say, hey, uh, apartheid was bad, you know, and that's something that South Africans still have a hangover on. Uh, it's like apartheid because we still live the consequences of the policies, uh, be it institutionally or in terms of land ownership economically and socially on many levels. Uh, but at the same time, if one uh, uh, applies a wholesale kind of approach to the matter, then you risk the, the possibility of uh, looking over the fact that there are black people who benefited from apartheid, for example. So of course it's important to understand the wholesale kind of uh, approach, but also it becomes important to really zoom in and look at individual cases. Um, and uh, for me, uh, my interest um, is, uh, I mean, the collective interest is there, which has been uh, an academic one and something that I'm still hoping to pursue. Um, but at the same time, there are figures that I find interesting as ways of evoking the bigger collective um, uh, 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 memory project. Um, because I feel like I can't access it just on a collective. I, I need an entry point. So for example, Gladys and Kujanji becomes an entry point into a whole lot of other kind of political discussions or philosophical and theoretical within the South African um, art historical narrative. Um, uh, Sol Plaji becomes someone who I can deal with the fact that the uh, history keeps or is seeming to repeat itself in South African politics. Now, the issue that Sol Plaji had brought to London in 1914 is such a hotly debated issue in South Africa at this point that it's actually affecting the economy negatively. Um, so how do I think about these things? For me, it becomes productive then to use uh, fiction, literary text, um, a strategic ways of, of engaging with it, um, not just as just once of kind of uh, instant, but um, uh, something that is 
accumulative over time, and he becomes my entry point to a larger collective kind of uh, project. In the same way that Nat Nakasa was. Um, mm. In fact, when I did the project uh, uh, with Nat Nakasa, and the government announced that they were going to take his remains back from New York, back to South Africa, like I had emails, text messages, people calling me, oh, there's so-and-so who's buried in East Germany who left, and I'm like, wait, 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 you know, that's not my project, I'm not the undertaker, you know. <laughs> uh, you know uh, it was just about, if, and for me, it was okay, I've succeeded in a sense that people are now like, hey, Gimang has been doing this project over two years, and the government has made a move, now people are doing publications, you know, and starting to do research about other kind of, and for me, that it, that's what it's about. It's not about, hey, now I'm gonna, hey, let's dig up so-and-so who's in East Germany or who's in Oxford, you know, kind of, it, it, for me, it's not the point, um, yeah. Thank you so much, Kameng. <laughs> <laughs>